I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. In this episode of the Food About Town podcast, Michael Warren Thomas from Saver Life joined me and introduced me to Amy McAmer from Herd Orchards out in Holly, New York, which, by the way, I highly recommend going out and checking them out before Christmas. They're selling amazing local products. They're a fruit uh, fruit orchard, and they make amazing fruit-related products, jams and jellies and all sorts of things. So if you need something last minute, make sure to go out there uh, today, uh, Saturday, uh, Sunday, and uh, check out their website for the rest of their hours. Highly recommended. Um, just as a prelude to the episode, I, I do apologize for the long delay between the last episode and now. I have started recording again. I've got some interesting uh, topics lined up, some food-related, some not. I'm just excited to be back and recording again. Um, And I'll be on talking about the delay. Obviously, everybody's been dealing with so much this year, and uh, I'm no exception to that. So uh, I'll be back on to talk uh, about that, some of my thoughts from this year and otherwise. But I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Amy was an amazing guest, and Michael, obviously one of my favorite people in Rochester. So... Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of 2020 as best you can. And we'll be back with more uh, either this year or in the beginning of next year. Thanks for listening. And welcome back after a bit of a long delay on the Food About Town podcast. Uh, I'm back with another episode and I'm joined by... One person I know quite well and one I haven't met until tonight. Um, Michael, why don't you introduce yourself really quick? Sure. Michael Warren Thomas. And uh, the pleasure to be back. I I like the fact that you do longer format interviews. You know, so many radio, TV, even newspaper, they're just very short format. So I appreciate that. I was on the radio for a couple of decades and left this past June to go only online. So saverlife.com is where people can find my weekly shows on food, gardening, the Finger Lakes, uh, wine, the, kind of the full full gamut of appreciating life. How, how many hours a week do you do of content, Michael? Right now, I've been doing a little bit less. Uh, normally, for you know 24 years, I did about five hours a week now, on the weekend. Now I'm doing... About two to three hours total, but that'll probably go up as we finally come out of this pandemic. Beautiful, which I'm very excited about. And um, I have somebody who I haven't met tonight. Um, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Amy McAmer, and I'm on your program from Herd Orchards, which I own and manage with my mother, Susan Herd McAmer. And it's just great to be here. Michael's been a big supporter of ours for Oh, I don't even know how long. It has to be longer than 15 years or so. It feels like a long time. And our farm is west of Rochester in near the village of Holly in the county of Orleans. So I'm glad to be here. Beautiful. So, uh, yeah, how far of a drive is it from the from the city? I guess I don't I'm, I know the name of the town, but I don't know how long it takes to get there. <laughs> yes. Well, um, you know, as the crow flies, it's just about 30 miles. Um, so depending on where you live in Rochester area, it's about approximately a half an hour drive. So we say a half an hour to ourselves when we're rushing in for an appointment, but <laughs> say it might take a little longer. It's just past Brockport. 
So oh, beautiful. Brockport is the westernmost village um, in Monroe County on the Erie Canal. And we are just about five miles west of Brockport. Ah, see, see, I've made a lot of drives in recent um, recent years out that way to go get some uh, Mexican food out in Albion and in uh, yep. Medina, which is yep. Uh, yep. Uh, great places to go out there to go get some traditional Mexican food. But yep. from, and uh, as you mentioned, Michael had been a supporter for a long time. I'd heard a lot about your um, harvest events over the years. And yeah. it's something I've, I very rarely heard something described so vividly and um, and enticingly as Michael made those uh, harvest dinners sound. It sounds like something that was a big part of your life. Yes, yes, our Thanksgiving tastings. And then we also have a sister program, our Midsummer Night Tasting, in the first weekend of August every year. And they're, they're really a hallmark, kind of a jewel or a centerpiece of our farm. My mom and I began our Thanksgiving tasting, the very first one in 1985. And um, they, they're a wonderful, expressive tool for us. And so um, what it is, like the facts of what it is, is a beautiful dinner. Every year it's a brand new um, array of recipes, which we create and we serve from serving tables. So the visual part is really important. Um, and usually a lot of recipes because it's more a tumble of exciting and fun tastes and flavors and possibilities than it is a carefully, highly orchestrated um, program. And so- Well, isn't that, isn't that a great way of cooking though? It's a great way of cooking and actually taking you back into the dark ages of our tasting. The very first one was because for a really practical reason. And that was that, you know, we're a farm market and we've had a farm market all of my life and, and longer. And, um, and people think that farm markets end, you know, with, with Halloween and the last pumpkin and, um, you know, the last apple picked. Um, and my mom and I found ourselves in 1985 looking at each other and thinking, okay, what's next? And literally nobody came to our farm. Nobody called us. So what we did that I think was the fun part was that we closed our eyes and said, well, we're going to do something about this. Closed our eyes and thought, what would we, if we drove way out into the country, 30 miles or from <laughs> Buffalo, 60 miles or further, um, what would entice us? And we saw, um, you know, wonderful very toothy displays, um, candles lighted. Um, we tasted wonderful things in our minds. And then we just said, well, let's do it. And so we did. And we have this famous story that we tell every single year. And that was that um, it was an unheard of word actually in that time. I mean, I don't remember anyone else calling anything a tasting. But what we wanted to do was tell people that we wanted to teach them how to cook with the season. So what was November? What was cooking from Western New York in November, which is, you know, past harvest. So what is that? Also, we love Thanksgiving because the, um, we just love the, for a farmer, the real, there's a, there's a much more, um, you know, actual sense of what a harvest celebration is. And so we wanted to just shout that with the loudest megaphone we could possibly shout. And so we put this little ad in a local classified um, penny saver that said, come for a taste of Thanksgiving at such and such a time. There were no reservations. It was totally informal. <laughs> and it was bitter cold, and our market had no big barn. And, you know, we didn't have a bathroom. We didn't have a furnace. We just had our pot-bellied wood stove. 
And it wasn't that we were primitive. It was just, you know, it was a farm stand on the side of Ridge Road, you know, very traditional. And the first night we had a handful of people. I think I dropped a scalding hot pie on someone's foot um, that night. Very <laughs> few things more romantic than that. <laughs> Can you imagine? Come to dinner. <laughs> Something exciting might happen. And by the last night, by the fifth night, we had like 82 people who just suddenly responded to our idea, which gave us gave us the encouragement to say, oh, wow, people might be captivated by the same things that move us. And so after that, the tasting has become just this means for us. It's really like an artist with a canvas or, you know, an, an author with a book. It's our, it's our vehicle for saying, look again at our farming world, not just farming quote with a capital F like generic, but specifically our fruit growers farm world here in Western New York and see the magic. And so all these years, everything we do, but certainly our tasting has been interpreting that in different, with different slices and different little angles and different things to share. So it really is a self-expression, which our whole farm team helped breathes life into. It's not my mom and I doing that. It's our entire farm team just really catching that spirit and, and sharing it from the ground up. So it's, com you know, just completely a grassroots um, expression of our world. Yeah. It's fun. And some of these are heirloom recipes, right? Uh, you, you find them in old cookbooks and, yep. Yep. and some come from other countries because of people that work on the farm yep. or connection. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're big believers in region. I love regionality. I just love the differences between areas and all that that means. And so for us, we are, um, you know, we are of the land. That's pretty, um, perhaps a kind of a corny way of saying that we, we are this region. And so sharing that is great. So a lot of recipes come from our family. A lot of recipes come from ancient tattered cookbooks, which we tend to um, hang on to a long time or find whenever we can. I just had a woman from Lewiston um, send me a message that she has a collection of historic Western New York cookbooks and, you know, can she bring them our way? And the answer was a capital Y, E, S. <laughs> and so, but then you're right, Michael, we have people helping us on our farm from a lot of different um, areas of the world and walks of life. And so their stories and their, their lives become embroidered in, into ours as well. And so oftentimes we're sharing that. And sometimes it's just fun to plain old create and just say, oh, we could uh, stuff a little tiny roam with a wonderful, um, with a wonderful um, something. And um, I'm going to be moving here just a tiny <laughs> bit. And, See, this is, um, this is the fun. This is the fun of remote recording in, <laughs> during a pandemic in 2020 is um, and by the way, that's, you know, you're, you're hearing this not at full studio quality, but um, what a great thing that we can connect remotely in a, in a difficult, um, cool. difficult time like this where we can all reach out and uh, still have a good time chatting. Yeah, it's really cool. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> okay, so now we're in the kitchen. Beautiful. <laughs> well, and uh, what, I, what I wanted to take a step back to is how, how normal of a statement you made that you were cooking what was available in November in 1985 yeah. and how, how trendy that has become 
while for a farmer, it's the reality of life forever. You cooked what you had available to you because that was sustenance. That was the food you grew. That was what you had available. You had what you could store. You had what you could pickle. You had what you could process. Um, and how matter of fact a statement it is for those that grow, but not for us that consume. Right, right. Well, I think one of the magic tricks that um, modern transportation storage has done for all of us, and you know, we're a part of the modern world too. And so for all of us is that it's deceiving because really, really having a raspberry for Valentine's Day is, is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And, um, and so for us, we wanted and still want to, because I still think it's really important to reconnect people with seasonality. Seasonality is huge. And I also think, I want to say something else about seasonality because, um, I think eating with the seasons is fun because it's exciting, not just because it's meaningful, which it is. Um, and not just because it's, quote, local or the thing to do or trendy, as you said, or whatever, but because it's more exciting. Why? Because a season comes with anticipation. Um, you can taste those strawberries coming in June, right? Like, you know, and suddenly they're here and all you want are bowls of strawberries and strawberry everything. And all of a sudden, by the end of June, it's time for cherries and strawberries are they're wonderful, but you know, really a bowl of cherries is wonderful. And so I think that, I think that having those really clearly marked seasons and each one for me anyway, um, is marked not just by taste and product. So agriculture is a lot more than a product. It's a lot more than a crop. It's everything that comes with that. Like we often will tell people by the end of August, the sun is different. If you're out picking peaches and you get towards the end of the afternoon, first of all, the whole earth has changed color and everything is warm, warm colors everywhere. Goldenrod starts to bloom, right? And the landscape has warmed up. And then suddenly the evening sun or not even evening, late afternoon, it slants and everything is pink. The entire sky, and I don't mean a sunset, I mean there's a different quality to the sunlight. And then you taste that beautiful peach off of a tree in the end of August with juice dripping down your chin. And it's an eating experience that is completely transporting, which you would, there would be no way you could have that, never mind wintertime, there would be no way you could have that in October or in July or in May. And so the eating with the seasons gives um, gives life to eating in my mind. And you're absolutely right. Very traditional on farms, absolutely traditional. Another message we try to tell people is that, you know, we make jams. It's very old fashioned. Um, it's not actually a part of our modern um, eating pattern in Europe more so than in America. But it's not, you know, it's not something that's our everyday is just to consume lunch of jam. Well, why was that? Because by the end of the growing season, which a lot of Americans even forget that there is a growing season, it may be slightly different in different parts of the world. It may be, you know, our summer might be winter, our winter might be summer, or maybe a slight shift. They start picking strawberries, to use that example again, you know, in Florida for our winter market. So their season is different. But once the growing season ends it's over in the temperate world in the northern hemisphere it's done and all nourishment for all humans has to be in and off the land right 
You can't wait until after it's 20 degrees to pick an apple. You know, it has to be done. And so there's this hurry towards the end of August through September and through October to gather and store and gather and store. So you're absolutely right about that part as well. And so a confection, a raspberry preserve made in July or made from September raspberries maybe, you know, suddenly glows and is filled with not just the flavor of the raspberry, but the memory of the rose, you know, with gleaming red berries um, in the month of July. And that is a very ancient way of eating and, and a very ancient way of living as a human being. And only in the last, what, since refrigeration was, was really, um, um, I don't want to use the word invented, but since refrigeration <laughs> was capitalized upon and cold storages, the modern trucking industry, um, freezing, which was Clarence Birdseye, you know, these are modern tools. And now we have even more modern tools. We have aseptic packaging and other things. The ancient ways of preserving food, the most ancient was drying, and then it was brining and salting. Um, and then well, cordialing, so alcohol. Fermenting, yep. And then jam making was ancient as well because sugar is the oldest preservative known to man. And so those were ways that one's, and one stored and kept food. Um, and so anyway, I think it's fun and for us, not only a part of us and our fiber, um, and what we're made of, but it's exciting, you know, well, and it's yeah. exciting to teach people that as well. Well, it's, it, it provides a variety. The, the variety of life is, it's that fleeting moment. You're right. It's that fleeting moment of when you get, you know, you get the new, you get that squash coming off the farm, you get that, that fresh cherry, um, you, you mentioned jams so eloquently. Um, what's, you know, I know it's, it's hard to separate out, but when you taste one specific jam, which, which is the one that captures your imagination the most? Cause I mean, like I said, you speak so eloquently about it, but which is the one that grabs your imagination the most when you try it? Um, well, I think what I'll do is tell you some favorites. Oh, that'd maybe. be great. Um, so, you know, those old cookbooks have scratched little notes in them, but the writing about the recipe is often cryptic. It's usually not more than a sentence or two and a couple of ingredients. And the presumption is that the cook knows everything. That's how recipes, how that's Pardon how me? recipes used to be. And now they have to be exceedingly step-by-step -step. recipes no. used to be We're speaking to an experienced, um, experienced preserver or experienced cook. And exactly. now when you get a book, everything has to be very step-by-step. -step. <laughs> exactly. So one that I'll tell, I have to tell you a few because it's impossible to say one. So, but <laughs> here's a, here's a favorite. And that is our early summer harvest preserve. And that is from an old Orleans County cookbook. Our oldest cookbook we have from our County Orleans County, which by the way, is a very rural County sandwiched between the western counties of Erie and Niagara, quite urban, and Monroe. Um, and so early summer harvest is a combination of strawberry, sour cherry, red raspberry, and red currant. And so mm. red currant is what gives it the sparkle. It gives it, um, I don't want to say a tang, um, it gives it a zest that is amazing. And so that's, but the thing that's wonderful about it is that that's only June, July. That is, that's it. It's over by the time the last strawberry is done. We kind of created, and we didn't make it this year because we did not have an apricot crop. They're very elusive. 
but we kind of created a sister or um, you know, a partner to that. And that's our late summer harvest. And that's peach apricot. And we put in a little dash of orange. Mm. You know, another one that pops into mind is my grandmother's recipe for plum elegant. And um, so that's a September jam. And plums, usually the most of the plum crop is right from the end of August till the end of September. And so you could smell it, um, you know, on the stove. And my grandma was much more than just um, a home cook, she helped manage segments of our farm and she had had a theater background. She was an amazing lady. Um, but you would smell this plum elegant cooking and it's plums with a little bit of cider vinegar and brown sugar and then the sweet spices of cloves and cinnamon. And so it's not a jam, it's plum elegant. And then you would serve that um, in a proper 1930s way with um, you know, a roast or you would serve it um, to, to give something extra flavor. So I love that, you know, I absolutely love that about it. So that's another favorite, you know, another one. And this year we didn't make too much of this one. And that's our black currant, black cherry and raspberry. And that black currants, one of the most popular fruits in Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. I think it's the number one fruit grown in the country of Poland um, or had been for years by the number of pounds that's astronomical. I mean, huge volume, but very little known in the United States. Um, known, but not really known and understood. So it tastes like tar right off the plant. It's a terrible tasting fruit. <laughs> and it smells like tar. And but so you, we wanted to kind of mellow that a little bit. And so we mixed it with our black cherries because they're ripe at the same time. And then with some raspberry. Now that one is special because... Ugh, boy, sometimes putting adjectives around um, non-factual things is really hard. So describing oh, I love it. I love doing that. It's so much fun. They, okay, they, let's do it then. Yes, <laughs> so, please. So black currant, black cherry, and berry is kind of dusky. It is. Um, uh, it's it's got a depth. It's kind of, um, I don't want to use the word rich. It's a profound kind of a flavor. It has enough. Um, I mean, enough. it's a bold, it it's a bold combination, right? I mean, there's, there's some real boldness to all those there's flavors. Boldness. Yeah. So that, um, oh my goodness, that, if you pair that with, again, like a roast chicken or you put it with cheddar cheese or something like that, it's absolutely, I just think it, it is transformative i absolutely love it so th but there are many you could go on and on and you know it's fun too right because they all have um they all have a uniqueness and sometimes it isn't just the recipe i have to say it's the moment that you make it so this year we had we did a partridge in a pear tree gift box because we had several pear jams that in september were just perfect they were just simply perfect peach and pear was divine mm. Um, raspberry pear, you know, we picked our Bartlett pears and then we let them get mellow and ripe. Pears are one of the only fruits I know that you pick green. Otherwise they're gritty. They, they're sandpapery. So you have to pick them green and then we let them get really mellow. And then we just, we just ran with it. And so, you know, a plum and pear that was wonderful, a pear almond, um, pear fig. So some of that, why am I saying that? Because there have been other years where we may have those on the list because we love them. Pear almond, pear fig, you know, peach and pear, which is really only the second week in September. That is the week or forget it because they're both exactly at the right moment. Um, but if you miss step and you miss that moment and the pears are a little green or they've gone over the hill or the season isn't quite right, 
So some of it isn't just the recipe, it's actually this particular moment, this particular year, just like a fine wine, right? Oh, it's fascinating. Your descriptions uh, sort of move in that direction of wine, uh, like you yeah. might read in, uh, you know, Wine Spectator or something, the uh, descriptions. And uh, there, you make so many different jams and preserves and things that um, a, a hundred, more than a hundred, right? I mean, it's... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. Really, it's really interesting because it's... I, I'm kind of intrigued. So you... So your growing season, fruits are fruits are done. We're in December here in here right. in our region, uh, you know, Monroe out towards western New York, and you have a number of you know preserved goods. Uh, are you still running the stand, or do you sell them in stores, or how how do you sell things right now? Well, our market is open, okay, and we're, our season is generally the beginning of May. Our selling season is generally the beginning of May until um, December twenty fourth. Um, frankly, we've tried being open in the wintertime and Western New Yorkers are timid to come out the 30 miles in, mm. in the winter. Um, this year might be a little different. We'll see. A lot of people have been asking us if they can still get, um, you know, wonderful foods and delicious things through the winter months. So we'll see how that goes. Um, but yes, yeah, so even our kettle is still humming. So what we do now these days is that we use our wonderful Holly cold storage, which is one of the earliest cold storages in New York state. Please explain. Is that, is that a facility or is that, um, yep, that's a facility. It's independently owned. And, um, and so that's, uh, freezing it's old sandstone building. And of course they have additions now. And so we take, we harvest a lot of our fruits right in season, right when we, we want to pick them when they're perfect. And then we freeze them so that we can make, for instance, one we're making right now is our tart cherry and raspberry. Absolutely wonderful. And so we're able to do that. So that gives a little bit of a modern, um, you know, twist to the jam making. Um, someone in the 19th century would not have been able to do that, um, but we are able to. And so that extends our season just a little bit, which is kind of fun. Hmm. So you mentioned the store is open. Uh, what what days and hours is it open if people want to take the trip out, which I would definitely recommend? Yes. So we're open this year from Wednesday to Sunday um, from 11 to 3. We are there a lot longer and we welcome <laughs> guests anytime. One of the things we're famous for saying is if, if you see, you know, if you see a car there or if the door is open, please, you are welcome. We recognize that most of our guests travel a very long way. And so one is always welcome at Herd Orchards. We ship a lot of gift boxes. This is the season for that. Um, they are so much fun because they each one is a again a wonderful expression of kind of the wholesomeness of our farm um, but we put a lot of time into making them beautiful and so um you know we'll tie them up with ribbons and put beautiful greens from our landscape from our land from the forest or hedgerows or whatever twigs and berries and sometimes even a little bird's nest um, and send them off on their way to bring someone a smile here in the winter season. So that we're doing all the time. People can call us and order. People can order online. There are not everything that we do, but many selections are online as well, or they can visit us. We do wholesale. Um, you asked about that. Um, mm. Actually, we wholesale more out of our Western New York area, and we do have a wonderful truckload of Cherry Noel headed for Winston Flowers in Boston. 
um, I think on Monday. So that's kind of exciting as well. People far away can enjoy our things too. Yeah, and it looks like uh, people can find you at uh, herdorchards.com if you want to check out uh, some of the offerings you can grab online and have shipped in. Um, but, I mean, on a nice, lightly, on a nice snowy weekend, I mean, what a better thing than driving out into the country and kind of relaxing for a yeah. bit and uh, picking up some quality made local goods. Yeah, and you know, you said something when you said rela- the word relaxing. Um, one of the things that's lovely about having a small business is that the customers become um, become a part of our world. And each customer is different. And one of the things we talk about even is kind of hopefully if we're if we're hitting on all cylinders and and really doing a great job, is kind of reading why someone is there. And so we hear people say, and we also observe that people come to us for many reasons. Sometimes people come to us for the product. They just want the product. Sometimes people are in a hurry. Sometimes people come to us because um, they want a moment to be quiet, um, like that FedEx driver, right? Sometimes people <laughs> come to us because they want a glimpse of a world that um, is calm, is wholesome, is good. There are many people who come to us who are healing from a variety of woes and they want space. And we hear people even tell that to us. And sometimes people come to us because small businesses are community and they want the connection. And so remembering, um, you know, that Lori loves um, steamed quince pudding and she gets hers every year to put in the freezer or that Chase likes blueberry pie and that's important for Thanksgiving. You know, remembering those things, um, it's really fun to have a small business. It's hard work, but it's fun because our community is very big and we're connected to people of a lot of different kinds in, in ways that are big and small. And I have loved that. One of my oldest memories when I first came back to our farm was, again, another little peach story was, and this is when I knew I wanted to stay on our farm. And that was that there was an older gentleman in Holly and his wife, Mildred, Elmer Boynton, and his wife, Mildred. That's a great name, by the way. Yeah, I love it, right? And Elmer drove, I don't know what kind of car, but it was a great big burgundy boat. And he came for only, he came to our farm for only two things every year. And one was rhubarb. And one was a basket, a whole market basket of the biggest peaches we could possibly pick. (laughs) And I remember one year I was on the porch of our market, which at that point didn't have glass doors. And I saw his car coming down the road and we didn't have the peaches picked. And I remember thinking, Elmer's coming. I see him. I will (laughs) run out and I am going to get the biggest peaches for Elmer Boynton. And I knew after that, I mean, there are many other cues that told me that I was going to stay on our farm. But I remember after that um, incident thinking, you know, it's the humblest of things, right, to be able to provide food. And something as simple as worrying about how big Elmer Boynton's peaches were. But I knew after that that I was that that was really important in a way that had no place on a resume. You know, it was not an accomplishment that one puts um, as um, an accolade. And it and it doesn't, you know, it's not a show-off thing. It's just that was important to remember Elmer Boynton's rhubarb and his peaches. And 
it's like that with many customers. Um, and that is our world. We do that every day. And I love this season right now, um, you know, the holiday season, because it comes charged with people's families and their their hopes and a report about their year. And so many times people might give us their Christmas list. I just helped Isabel Wager yesterday and her Christmas list. I knew about Paul in Oregon and I knew about Lauren in Virginia and I knew about Carol in Averill Park right outside of Albany. <laughs> Carol loved pink. And so we were pulling together the favorite things um, for each person, a jar of pickles. Um, we make wonderful old fashioned bread and butter pickles in addition to other things. Um, lemon poppy seed bread, cranberry apple bread, you know, the favorite things. And um, and it's fun to be a part of people's lives. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating that you bring that up. Um, I was home this last weekend helping my parents sell Christmas trees. Um, uh, we were in our 30th year, and I've been, you know, selling garden plants and Christmas trees since I was seven. And yeah, the it. amount of people that you know, were around when I was in middle school and high school buying trees and now they're kids and some of those kids are now having kids and showing up and buying trees. And it's the, those anecdotes that you brought up about you see somebody come in like, all right, well, I know exactly what experience I'm in for right now. I know they want this kind of tree and I'm going to go do it. And I'm not there all the time, but going home for those big weekends and experiencing that part of that, that conviviality and that enjoyment. My dad sets up a giant train set in the back in our greenhouse and people come back every year and they're like, Oh, I want to go see the train set. I want to go talk to you, talk to your mom in the back. Who's making the wreaths. It, there is, it's a sense of community that's hard to explain for those that haven't been yeah. with it. It's not with me every day because that's not the day-to-day -day life I live anymore. But when I'm there, there, there's just something about it that's hard to explain if you haven't lived yeah. the small business yeah. life. It's what I grew up with. Yeah. I was at one of our tastings a few years ago and it was towards the end and most people <sighs> had left and there was a table of four people from Buffalo there um, two couples. And when I went to talk to them, um, towards the end, um, I, I was saying something just like what we're talking about now. And I was trying to explain this sense of the connection that a business gives. And they stopped me and they said, Oh, we know exactly. Um, our family ran this old Italian market in downtown Buffalo for generations and the old guard had worked there until their last day, you know, right until the end. And that that place, they all grew up with it. They all grew up with different jobs and delivering things. And they had known all the stories going way back, which I do too. You know, I know the stories from not just the 35 years my mom and I have been in business together, but from 50 years ago and 75. And I can repeat the stories and they, they said, you know, some of the stories that kept the old guard going were that, you know, during the depression, they would be, you know, cooking the food to sell, whatever, and they would leave pots of things on the back step for people who didn't have food. And so 
business became, and I see it with my daughter, Amelia, business, a family business becomes, um, there's a role, A, there's a role for everybody, no matter what age, from, you know, just past toddler age, you know, once, once they can help all the way through until they don't want to do it anymore. And for so many, it's, um, you know, it gives them reason to be vital and apart, even as, you know, an older person. And, and that sense of, of connection um, together as a business and then in the community around is just, it is remarkable. However, it is, it, it comes with a price tag and the price tag, Huge. as I'm sure you know, is a tremendous amount, not just of hard work. Sometimes people say hard work and they think it's that we're hoeing out in the field all day long. It's not that, but it's that everybody else has gone home and you remember four things that have to be done. You know, they simply must be done. And it's the waking up in the night and saying, oh my goodness, you know, um, what if, or it's the worrying it through that really is the work more than the physical work. And, um, and that's part, you know, if a family business is um, an incredible privilege in all the ways we're talking about. And I would never use the word burden, but it also comes with, um, you know, you work for that. It there's is a not, weight. It's not just a given. <laughs> no, there, there's, there's a weight. There's a weight to it. A weight. I love that word. Um, yes. There's a weight to it. Yeah. It's, and again, I'm, I'm very thankful that. I'm thankful that I've had that experience and I'm thankful I don't have that active experience. Um, <laughs> um, because it, it is a lot. I, you know, we, we didn't, we grew up working because we had to, we had to do this, yeah. you know, this is an old school family business. You know, I worked, you know, nights after school and all my weekends and all my summers. Um, but it's, you know, I, I owe a lot to that part of my life. And it colors the way I see the world in a way that it's, like you said, it's, it's hard to explain, but there's, there's still that weight and responsibility. I, I still go home on busy weekends and help because it's the right thing to do because it needs to be done. So people don't have a bad time. So you can, but that's, it's, it's also so, you know, there's, you know, we're, we're not, we're not desperate anymore, but it still feels necessary to go and do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's altogether not modern. I will also no. say that, you know, we, I hear, I hear people talking and I know what other people's lives are and, um, and, uh, you know, without saying anything disparaging, I think a lot of a modern concept of work in America, perhaps farther beyond that includes many things that having a small business precludes. Um, having weekends off, having the time be your own. Um, the, I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And it is such an alternative um, life choice in this era, in this period of time, that it really does give me goosebumps. And I feel as though it's an, uh, just a, a moving and touching and profound privilege. Um, one of the other reasons I came back to our farm after college um, was because it was humble. And um, that's a weird thing to say that doesn't maybe fit um, in, in any context. Um, but I loved the fact that, um, and I, it took me a long time to know I loved it. I have to say that. I just responded 
instinctively to the fact that here they're, you know, proving oneself was simply the merit of your contribution, period, end of story. It was not about dazzling anybody. It was not about rank. It was not about even perhaps ability. It was about simply your willingness to make a contribution and taking that seriously. And and the fact that growing food is humble, we all need to eat. It grows in the dirt. You know, it is basic, but it is also at the very same time incredibly elegant, particularly fruit, those blackberries, those peaches, you know, a perfect apple or an imperfect apple. Mm. Absolutely artist worthy, right? All of it. And yet at the very same time, it's basic elementary essential nourishment and it grows from the earth and the fact that i could do both of those two things at the same time and not have to worry about um impressing anybody um except maybe elmer boynton (laughs) (laughs) i i find it very interesting you brought up the word humble there because it's um i've been thinking a lot about this kind of stuff this year for any number of different reasons um you know, more perspective, more time to reevaluate things. And that, that what you mentioned, that humbleness, um, I think a lot of it boils down to the fact that there is something bigger than you. You're not that important. Yeah. And that you, you as an individual aren't, you're not that important. You're in, there is something bigger than you. There's, there's society, there's a group, there's all these things that are important. And I think, taking that step back to look at that, you know, this year's offered a lot of that time. And I I hope a lot of people have taken that time to think about, think about the world in a more serious way, but not, not in a bad way in any, like there's been a lot of pain and unfortunate things this year, but I think it offers a lot of perspective as well. Uh, I think we we can talk about all the great things about food and I'm excited to talk more about that, but um I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's it's been a it's become more and more important to me to yeah, have an active conversation about these kind of things. Yep, I agree. This year in particular, and we see that in people's faces too. People kind of looking at us or or saying in words, but a lot of times we can see that people are kind of searching for um, a, a reevaluation of whatever fast paced world they've uh, live in or created and looking for things that are a little bit more elementary. Um, But I wanted to make a comment also on the humbleness and specifically about farming. And you may already resonate with this, but um, one of the things that's, that's absolutely beautiful about agriculture, and I think is so often not at all recognized, is that I think personally, that agriculture, um, because everyone on a farm needs each other in order to make the farm continue, that there is this, in, this, this without speaking, a respect for all people that is very unique. It might be perhaps more so on a fruit farm. I have to say, I might be speaking specifically from a fruit farm perspective, but truly the, the person, um, you know, a picker, a, a harvester, if you put a bulldog out there picking apples, it's over. I mean, literally, you will not have a valuable fruit. It's done. <laughs> it, and I, the, the most graphic example when I've tried to tell people this is that the person who is 
the most important on a hot August day at 95 degrees when you've had three weeks of drought, there is only one person that matters. And that's the person who can get the irrigation pumps started. And that may not be the person with the fancy degree. It may not be the person paying the bills. It is so incredible. And so on a farm, I think a farm is like a whole, not insulated community, but I think a farm itself um, has all of these different skills. You need the person who has the business plan. You need the person who can market. You need the person who can make the reeds like your mom, right? You need the person who knows how to run the greenhouse. Um, you need the people to lug the flats of plants or to carry the baskets of cherries or who are willing to go up on a ladder. You know, the top of, who, who is that who goes to the top of a ladder on an old cherry tree, right? Mm. Who is that? Who is that person? Um, and it's always 95 degrees in July, right? Of course and it is. And so all of those people are dependent on one another. And I think when a farm works, people realize that. And um, there's this instinctive respect that I think oftentimes in the agricultural, the agricultural community has been viewed from the outside looking in with, um, you know, very much imperfect eyes. People don't really see what happens. It's a very closed world. And they presume many things and project onto agriculture many things. But one of the gifts of agriculture that I've always felt is that, oh my gosh, it's total acceptance of all people because you have to. Well, and yeah. You know that the package that you need, the, 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 the key element, the key person that you need may not come with all the bells and whistles and all the glory. They just simply may be the person that helps you the most and, and get through. Our last old style farmhand. So farms used to all have a quote farm hand. If you want to read a poem that will make you cry. Um, it's uh, Robert Frost's death of a hired man. Um, it will, it's long and it's elegant. Um, and he touches on the rawness of it. Um, and he hits a lot of nerves and plays a lot of strings that are absolutely razor sharp. He knew what he was saying. Um, but that old style hired man doesn't exist exactly in the same form that it used to. Um, but our old last old hired man was Charlie Angert. He was wonderful. Um, and you know, he hadn't graduated from the sixth grade, um, but he was so needed um, in every capacity. You know, his rows were straight planting the flowers and the strawberries. He was, you know, he started every day at eight o'clock exactly in the morning. He stopped at exactly 12 and his wife, Isabel Lucy, had dinner on the table. It was not lunch. It was dinner. Um, and then they had supper in the evening, which was a light meal. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget um, that he, Charlie's kind of crotchety, wonderful friend and um, <laughs> He was great, but he would never listen to my mom. He always would only listen to my grandpa. And every day at eight o'clock in the morning, standing in my grandpa's, my grandma and grandpa's hallway, he would say, well, Leland, you know, what do you want me to do today? You know, da, da, da. <laughs> and then in 1990, my grandfather um, passed away. And um, the very, and it was in the evening and my mom and I were the only ones there. And in the morning at, at eight o'clock, 
um, Charlie Angert and his wife, Isabel Lucy, came to the front door dressed impeccably and in their Sunday best, as my mom said. And they chatted and we talked for quite a long time. And at the end of that, you know, really sad conversation, um, Charlie turned to my mom and said, Susie, what would you like me to do today? And it was so beautiful to see, um, you know, just again, a humbleness and um, a wanting to help and wanting to make things work. So farms are really special places in terms of um, that sense of humbleness as well. It comes in a lot of packages and it's in every breath that we take. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's fascinating to hear that kind of story because it's so, it's so evocative of a life lived in many yeah. different ways. Where is your farm? Where um, is South towns family? of South towns of Buffalo. So uh, Boston, New York. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And our, our farms in Ashford hollow, uh, just South of Springville, New York. Oh, and it's a greenhouse. Yeah. Our, our greenhouse is in Boston, our tree farms in Ashford, um, but we've been selling out of our old, small, not perfectly taken care of house and our yard oh, since I was a little kid going to the Springville auction, buying. Um, I have so many memories of the characters of the Springville farm auction yeah. uh, going there in the summers and uh, um, and, and seeing, seeing a different part of, like I said, a, diff- a completely different swath of life than I live now. I'm, I'm a fancy lad now. No, you know, I, 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 I don't live a, I don't live that life anymore, but, um, you know, like I said, growing up around it and having that be a big part of your life and seeing everybody and, you know, respecting those for who they are, um, from all segments of life. Um, those kind of lessons get really baked in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff. This is, this is the reason I love conversations around anything, but you have these conversations around food and because food is part of life. Food is conversation. Food is culture. Food is, food is diversity. Food is respect. All these things come into it. Um, which is why I love talking to people. And I'm very grateful that Michael brought us together today. And, you know, I'm, Me too. I, I, I want a Michael Warren Thomas story because you have been yeah. going to Herd Orchard. Like I said, I've heard you talk about them. I, I want a Michael Warren Thomas story about Herd Orchards. For in some, I don't know what it is, but I know there's a Michael Warren Thomas story about Herd Orchards. Yeah, that's like trying to pick my favorite <laughs> jam. Uh, or, or we could get revenge on you, Chris, by, you know, what's your favorite plant, your favorite flower when you worked in the greenhouse, oh, you know, man. <laughs> you know, uh, so I actually have a folder, a herd orchards folder of all of their recipe books from the, the different tastings, the midsummer tasting and the Thanksgiving tastings. And, um, they, and I haven't missed a Thanksgiving tasting since I discovered them, which was, I think uh, 1996 was is my first of the uh, uh, recipe books. So I have you know 24 of them from Thanksgiving, and uh, you know our, our our oldest daughter, who's uh, in her 20s, uh, came to one of those in a in a uh, car carrier, 
basket sat next to the table while we were enjoying the, the dinner. Um, and it just seems like it, over the years, um, we've watched Amelia grow up, the, the eighth generation at, at Herd Orchards, uh, from a, a tiny but tall kid to, you know, uh, uh, now a college student. Um, so uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can pick out one story uh, other than the fact that I now have uh, birthday pie and no longer birthday cake. <laughs> I just love fruit pies. And, um, you know, the Amy makes all of the crusts for those pies and they, they make a lot of pies. And, and uh, <laughs> I usually have a stockpile of some frozen apple pies to have while they're closed during the winter. Um, because because no one does crusts like that elsewhere, and so they've 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 sh shifted my eating habits uh, uh, over time by by going and we've made a bunch of those recipes from the uh, the, the the recipe books and uh, and and look forward to making more of them. They're simple recipes. I mean, the uh, you know you watch. Food Network or, you know, TV shows about food and, you know, complicated recipes and hours and the, the recipes that you get from these old cookbooks and, and from the cooks in your kitchen there are, are really pretty simple. Um, you know, they're doable for someone who, who's not a experienced cook and, and they don't, uh, they're, they're really unlikely to fail because because of this, they're they're relatively simple, and um, you know, so so I I've had fun making some of those, and and I have fond memories of some of the the recipes. But uh, um, it also for me, you know, I have two daughters, and to uh, bring them, and they've been many times uh, to a farm that's run by women, uh, and really only only by women. You have. They're male employees, but it's. I remember Amy, you telling me when you go to meetings of other apple growers, uh, there are not many farms run by women, and you know even in the the, the greenhouse world and and horticulture, there are relatively few businesses run by women, um, and that, you know. I, th I thought that was inspirational for my daughters to to watch that and to watch the generations working together. And uh, one other comment I wanted to throw in also was um, the the fact that your mother has a you know studied a degree from Cornell and and that there's a lot of science behind this the you know the the homespun farm idea, just like in with Chris's family. There's a lot of science behind greenhouses, and and you got to stay up on these things. It's uh, and and I think that may be one aspect of farming and horticulture that people don't realize just how much science is part of your everyday experience yeah. on the farm, right? It's huge. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's fascinating that you mentioned a, a woman-owned business as well because women owned and run uh, my. Uh, my sister has three kids, and she mentioned to me that her, her eldest daughter, who's now six, just over six, she latched on to um, 
books about women, books about women who accomplished great things and their, their childhoods and, uh, you know, talking about how a woman becomes successful in the world. Um, and I think I'll be happy to share this, um, uh, share this with her because that's, it's great to hear all those, you know, the choices that turn somebody into a success and success can be so many different things, but building a long-term community and long-term successful, uh, pillar of a community is, um, laudable in its own right, but not, not I don't want to be too saccharine. So I want to talk about pie crust for a moment. So you brought up pie crust, pie crust was brought up. What makes your pie crust? So are we an all butter place? What, what do we, what do you do that makes your pie crust, your pie crust? Well, um, it's just about practice. So it's just like learning to play the piano and there is no other secret to pie crust. I don't care what kind of shortening people use. Um, it's really just in the handling of it. Um, you know, years ago, um, in 1985, my grandma Betty Hurd died and I was living with my grandfather and he was so much fun. He always had a twinkle in his eye. He, he just, he just had a great sense of humor. And so he said to me, I said, I want to make a pie as wonderful as Nana's. And he said, well, let's just make a pie a day until we get it right. And so we did. And I mean, some were horrible, absolutely horrible. Some were pretty good. And we just had a ball laughing about it. And I guess I have a feeling about pies that is different than maybe when I hear people talk about pies. And that is that I don't, I don't think it's about good or bad. I think a pie is, um, you know, it's wrapping up in a traditional American crust. So in another world, it's a different crust. It might be a crepe. It might be a tortilla. It might be a pita. You know, there's a lot of different crusts out there that we wrap up our food in. And so for me, a pie is no different than making a pot of soup. It's, it's the moment. It's the season. It's the um, wonderful flavors all together. And just like a hand knit sweater, there, there are going to be variations in it. And so our pies are not all absolutely one thing. Um, the problem I think with pie crust now for most people, well, the problem with pie is that it's a two step process. So you mm. have to make a crust and you have to make a filling and then you have to bake it. And so in our busy world, there isn't a lot of time for that. It, it's, um, and the problem with that is that you can get nervous when we, we, we worry a little bit when we hear people say that they're going to make their one pie of the year for Thanksgiving dinner, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, that's a coffee, frankly, that's like, we get a little nervous about that. So we want to say, you know, just kind of start a few weeks before and make a few pies and don't sweat it so much. People get so uptight and they think it has to be like the magazine cover or these days on Pinterest or social media, whatever, whatever media you see a picture in, you think it has to be this perfect thing. And I don't think they're perfect. I think pies should be imperfect. So we use a vegetable shortening. Um, and what I will say about that is that we decided to do that years ago when it was at a period of time when using an animal fat was heresy, absolutely off 
the charts. You would not do that. And so vegetable shortening was the only thing to use. And then we have weathered the entire trans fat um, discussion. And one of the things that I think it would be really interesting for lots of people to know is that by U.S. law, all shortening in the United States is zero trans fat. So I think that that's important. Now, that means that the shortenings have changed their formulation. So if you buy Crisco in the grocery right now, it is not the same product that it was X number of years ago. And I don't know exactly when General Mills you know, changed the formula for Crisco. But um, so the shortenings are different. And we have had to rethink a little, um, you know, when I'm making the crust, it handles a little bit differently. But the real secret is, um, not to put any liquid in until after the shortening and the flour and whatever else you want to add there, add little ground pecans or if you want to, whatever. The minute the liquid goes in, you, you have to back right off and stop handling it as much as you possibly can. And that includes in the rolling. It doesn't matter how much flour you put down or if you use a baking cloth, it makes no difference at all. The key is to just back off. So the more in a hurry you are, the more you have to make, the more you have to make, like if I know we're making a hundred pies in a day, the crusts get better and better and better through the day because I'm like hands off, let's get this stuff done. <laughs> if you're making the one pie of the year and you're sweating it and you're working that dough ball, you're just working and working and working and then, oh my gosh, every, every working of it, you are making that pie crust tougher and tougher and tougher. Yeah, I mean you're and building so, you're building so many you're building a gluten structure the more you work exactly. it. And yeah, it's 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 amazing. Yeah, it's my great grandmother, Grace Hurd, um, it is told. So she would have been born in the eighteen seventies. She she in the morning and she was under I understand she was a great baker. Um, in the morning she would have made her batch of cookies and two or three pies every day. Now, I don't think they ate all those pies every day. So she must have given them away or whatever. But she was in the habit. You know, it was like getting up and, um, you know, whatever, putting granola in your yogurt. It was not a production that stopped you in your tracks and you had to slave over. It wasn't a slaving thing. This was just what you did. You know, you did that, you got it done, and then your day continued. And so if you kind, if people could just lower the temperature of their, of their worry, and enjoy making pies and not expect that they're going to be quote perfection, just that they're going to be the pie of the week or the pie of the month or whatever and enjoy it. Um, actually secretly and quietly their pie crust will be getting better and better and better. <laughs> so that's actually my recipe is to enjoy it and not slave it. And you have the Northern spy apples uh, available yep. now, right? Uh, one of the I apples ever uh, found. Yep. 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 So Northern Spies are a Rochester native um, in the Bloom in Bloomfield. And I think they are they really. Yep. And discovered, they say, according to Fruits of New York, as a sport. So in the fruit world, a sport is, um, well, you know, not every every apple or every tree in a variety is exactly the same genetically. So in Empires or Macintosh or Honeycrisp or whatever variety you want to name, there are different qualities and sometimes you'll have a tree that is special you know for whatever reason who knows why just the the snip of the budwood was from a slightly different spot in the orchard or from you know slightly different genetic qualities and so um, northern spy there are many spies there's red spy there are lots of spies 
Um, Northern Spy was dis di um, discovered as a sport by a farmer in the Bloom in Bloomfield and became one of the most popular apples in the United States until after World War II when the, the production of apples really changed. And that's because it became more about cosmetics and transportability than it was about other qualities. And also I think people were getting more sophisticated about varietal differences, et cetera. Um, but we still grow Northern Spies and we actually planted extra to make our pies because we, for no other reason than we just love the flavor. There are a lot of pies, apples that make great pies. Um, one of our other favorites, but it's far too fleeting is the yellow transparent in the summertime. Sometimes at that summer tasting, we'll make a yellow transparent apple pie. And oh my gosh, that I will tell you that pie baked on August 1st will be the best apple pie of the entire year. Only it's impossible to replicate it um, because <laughs> once the season is gone, it's over. Um, and so it's just this moment and, and it's just glorious. But Northern Spy is a very high second and, um, and it's a glorious <laughs> apple and we have them. But they're imperfect because, again, speaking about perfection and humbleness and all of those things, you know, they show every limb rub. So they're, they're an apple that's greenish. They're not green. They're kind of creamy green and they have a pinky stripe. And so they're a, a light colored skin. They're not a dark skin and they're also not a thick skin. And so every mark, every bird pack, every, you know, too hard uh, or fleeting hail that didn't hurt anything else, it, everything shows up on a spy. So they never look um, showy. They look um, a little bit, um, you know, a little bit mottled or a little bit grubby. Um, but they're absolutely delicious. They're a lot of fun. They're a wonderful apple. Well, applesauce from them is divine as well. If you drive down Route 64 uh, from 5 and 20 toward Bristol Mountain, you'll see a, a state marker for the Northern Spy Apple along the road, one of the you know blue uh, iron signs or whatever they use. Love that. I'm going this winter. <laughs> um, I'm really glad you brought up apple varieties. Um, I'm, I'm not going to go on a tangent because I – I really want to talk about apple varieties for a long time. Um, but um, I'm really glad you brought up Northern Spy because I know that apple from the cider world where it's kind of, it's not like a pure heritage cider apple, but it's also well suited for more yeah. classic cider styles because it has, if I recall, I believe it has some tannins to it, which most dessert apples are, you know, light and crisp and kind of nothing, but Northern Spies have some character to them, which would be very well suited for a sweetened pie, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Chris, are you talking about hard cider or, yes. or sweet cider? Uh, for hard cider. So traditional cider isn't made with dessert apples. I mean, now most of the commercial ciders are made with um, what the industry would refer to as dessert apples, you know, empires or whatever else. Um, because they make a very approachable, light, crisp um, end product. But serious cider drinkers and what was traditionally grown as cider apples are not very palatable <laughs> um, when they're eaten on their own. So um, I find apples endlessly interesting. And I'm definitely going to have you back on to talk apple varieties because it. that's it's um, one of those things that if you want to dive into flavor, um, apples yeah. are just, there's so much there. It's you know, the, people think apple and they think the varieties they know, but it's so deep and so rich. I'm yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, grocery, the grocery store has maybe what eight 
varieties of apples and you go to a grocery yeah. store and herd orchards grows 60 or more mm. and there's 5,000 in the germplasm at Cornell University's uh, repository. And, uh, and I don't know if you've read Michael Pollan's Botany of Desire. That was mm. one of the books before he got famous for Omnivore's Dilemma. Uh, Botany of Desire is basically six sections and one of which is apples and one is uh, marijuana and one is potatoes and one is corn. And it's, they're basically long essays about each of those subjects. And the, the one about apples is just fascinating. It's, it's about how you know, the, this country, because of all the land that was planted all at once with, with apples to make hard cider because you couldn't drink the water, um, thousands of acres of apples. And that's where some of these varieties came from. They just, because they were tasty. And like you said, the, they, I think called them spitters, the ones that you normally made hard cider with, cause you, you didn't want to eat them. Uh, but occasionally there'd be a good apple. And so Michael Pollan really lays out the, uh, the, the history of the apple and it, it'll make you eat apples differently in the future. And you'll go in search of some of these russets and, you know, pippins and, uh, and then the, Amy, you have varieties that don't have names yet, right? They're just numbers yeah. because yeah. they're from Cornell. There's, yeah. there's this whole continuum of apples that, um, so anyway, for, uh, for research purposes, it won't take long to read, but Michael Pollan's book, I hope people will, will look it up and read that, that section on apples. Uh, and the, the one about corn is kind of famous too, because I think he's, he talks about how grasses like corn have basically um, uh, uh, they've they've engaged people to help them take control of the earth. Uh, it's it's the grasses that are in control. It's not people. We just don't know it yet. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. We through the land to plant all those uh, rows of corn. Um, but anyway, a great book that kind of got forgotten because Omnivore's Dilemma became so so popular. That's oh, fascinating. Yeah. So. Um, I, th I think what we're going to do, we're going to, we're going to close out. I think we could go for many, many more minutes. Um, and I've greatly enjoyed our conversation. Um, but let's close out with just a reminder of, um, Amy, where can people go and make the fantastic trip out to herd orchards? How, how can they find you? Well, we are located on Ridge road in the village of Holly, town of Murray in Orleans County. So we're half an hour west of Rochester and our actual address, if people typed it into their GPS is 17260 Ridge Road in Holly, New York. Um, we're on the north side of Ridge Road. So on the right hand side, heading out from Rochester and it's a beautiful country drive. Um, and then we'll send you on even more beautiful country drives once you get to us. Um, and we're open Wednesday through Sunday now through December 24th um, <clears throat> from 11 to three technically, but you can come after or give us a call. We also, I should mention in this era have are very willing to have private shopping appointments. We have many people who have called and want to come after hours or on an alternative day. That's totally fine. Um, we would welcome that. Um, and our phone number is 638-8838. And guess what? My mom, Susan heard Mackimer, who is 87 will probably greet you with a smile on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And uh, make sure to check out HerdOrchards.com if you'd like to make online orders as well. And uh, there's not that I should have to remind anybody, but if you're going out to visit anybody in person, um, please be respectful, wear your mask, and uh, be a decent person. Um, Michael Warren Thomas, uh, the illustrious, the notorious Michael Warren Thomas, um, where can people find you? Uh, SaverLife.com as my my home base uh, so to speak appreciate life uh it might save your life i suppose but it's savor life <laughs> appreciate life and uh and and i love when people email me with uh, questions about finding something in our region uh, michael at saverlife.com and i i would also just add that the the world of cobblestone houses is around herd orchards and just west yeah. of them there are hundreds of cobblestone houses and there's a church there's a cobblestone yeah. museum just west of them and so there's something about those cobblestones and the holidays and a little bit of snow and um so so when you go out to herd orchards look for some of those cobblestones uh, <laughs> it really is uh, unique to western new york yep beautiful and um, so I'm Chris Lindstrom. You can find me uh, at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram, Food About Town on Facebook. And you can also find Michael and I uh, on the uh, the new Rochester Food Net as well. I would be remiss if we didn't mention that. So, um, Michael, thanks so much for introducing me to Amy. And, Amy, this was a true delight. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. And best of luck with the rest of the holiday season. And to everybody out there, stay safe. And be good to everybody around you. Thank, Thank you, you, Chris and Michael both. You're wonderful. Have a great